You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Go with me quickly to the Italian prophet Malachi this morning in your Bibles. As we approach the arrival of the biblical feast of Passover, it is incumbent upon us to prepare our hearts to celebrate this annual festival of our redemption. Zman Cherutenu, the season of our freedom. And as we consider once again the rich history of this appointed time, this Moed, we recognize that the primary focus of our celebration is the awesome power and faithfulness of Adonai who brought about Israel's redemption from Egypt, an event that would forever stand as a model and a demonstration of how Adonai affects redemption, not only historically, but also eternally. Today, my friends, on the biblical calendar and the rabbinic calendar, Jewish calendar, is Shabbat Hagadol, the great Shabbat placed on the Jewish calendar right before Passover. And I wanted to show, I wanted us to view one Orthodox Jewish perspective of the meaning of this particular Shabbat. Guys, do you have that, have that video? Orthodox Rabbi Liebenberg. The Shabbat is the Shabbat before Pesach, and it is commonly known as Shabbat HaGadol, the Great Shabbat. But the question is, what makes it so great? Why is the Shabbat before Pesach the Great Shabbat? Why not the Shabbat before Shavuot or before Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? The common explanation is that it refers to the Haftorah, the section from the prophets that we read on the Shabbat. And that is from the book of Malachi, the last prophet. And at the end, the prophet says that before that great and awesome day, Yom Gadol, before that great day, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, and he will herald the coming of the Messiah. And therefore, there were those who suggested that that's where it got its name from, from the Haftorah. But one of the commentators tells us something that's really quite novel, that the word Gadol here doesn't mean great. It actually means an adult. We see in the Talmud, that a child, a minor, is referred to as a katan, a small one, and an adult is referred to as a gadol. This is the Shabbat of the adult, or becoming an adult. In Jewish law, a katan, a child, is uh, not required to do mitzvot. They have no responsibilities. They're young, they can't understand what their duties are, they don't have that sense of responsibility, they're off the hook. But when a child becomes bar mitzvah, a boy at the age of 13, a girl at the age of 12, they are now responsible. They become a gadol. They have responsibilities. They have to do mitzvot. Well, what happened on this Shabbat? On this Shabbat, or a few days before it, Moshe spoke to the entire nation of Israel. They were still in Egypt. And he said to them, we are going to be leaving this country very soon. And on the day, on the night before we leave, everybody has to take a sheep or a goat, slaughter it, and eat it that night as the Pesach sacrifice. And he told them a whole lot of laws that related to this particular sacrifice. And they had to prepare that sacrifice from four days before. And according to our tradition, four days before the Exodus was in fact Shabbat. That was the first day that as a nation, they became responsible to do a mitzvah. So up until that point, they had been katanim, they had been children. They'd been minors without responsibilities. On this Shabbat, they became a gadol. They became an adult. And perhaps what we're being told by our sages when we hear this is that what is the definition of gadlut? What is the definition of being great? One who has responsibilities. Not somebody who's got a lot of money and a lot of nobility and a lot of possessions. That's not what greatness is. Greatness means how many responsibilities do I have? That is the Shabbat HaGadol. I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom and best wishes for a Chag Kasheva Sameach, a kosher and joyous Pesach. Amen. Go with me to Malachi chapter 3. 
As again, as Rabbi Liebenberg stated, the Haftarah, the reading from the prophets, read in synagogues all around the world this morning, at the end of the book of Malachi, Malachi, which testifies to the coming of Elijah the prophet and to the Messiah. And I find this a perfect prelude to Passover. Let's look at these last several verses this morning. Verse 22. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, whom I commanded at Horeb, statutes and ordinances for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of fathers to, their, to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Else I will come and strike the land with utter destruction. So it's Malachi's parting shot. Adonai speaks to his people about reconciled families. We're doing a conference, right? One new man and Abba Father. It's not a minor subject. Reconciliation within families. Adonai indicates that the only alternative to reconciled families is his curse upon the land. My friends, our families are the building blocks of our congregations. They are the building blocks of our entire society. Maybe I can get an usher to go outside and tell who's ever boomboxing to kind of tune it down a little bit. You see, if our families fracture in mass, how many of you know we're going to have a fractured nation? It is vital that we follow all of Adonai's directives on how we can have reconciled families. Now notice the progression here in these verses. First, there, is the, there was personal alienation from God due to neglecting His word in verse 22. Next, we find that there's family alienation in verse 24. And, and if that's not corrected, the end of verse 24 shows us the final step, if that's not rectified, will be national deterioration. Adonai's remedy for the nation was to send in the future Elijah the prophet to call the people to repentance before the day of judgment. It's clear that God only sends judgment if we reject His offer of mercy. So we need to first get right with God by obedience to His word and then we get right with one another. These are the Two greatest commandments that sum up all the Torah and the prophets, right? Malachi is saying the key to reconciled families is obedience to God's word. Now that may strike us as overly simplistic. Rabbi Joel, that is a, we have a complex problem. That's just too easy of a solution, simplistic. Well, and you may say, well, that simplistic answer, Joel, ignores my abusive parents, my abusive father, maybe, and all the emotional pain that I suffered as a result of that. And some of you might say, well, that simplistic answer about obeying the word of God glosses over the poor communication that causes friction between my spouse and myself. Or that answer, Joel, doesn't help me with my rebellious teenager. Sure, it's not easy, is it, to get to the root of these problems, and it's not easy to apply the solution. But I will contend with you that virtually all of our relational problems in our families stem from disobedience to God's word on the part of at least one and almost always more than one family member. My friends, if we obeyed God's word, we would love Adonai fervently, and we would love one another as we in fact do love ourselves. We would treat others as we wish to be treated, right? Many of our ancient rabbis declared the injunction to, quote, love your neighbor as yourself, as the central teaching of the Torah. In fact, the commandment actually to love the stranger appears 33 times in the Torah itself. Why is there so much emphasis on this simple principle in Jewish life, because it's so hard for us to do. 
The entire Bible is a manual of relationships. How to be rightly related to Adonai. How to be rightly related to our fellow man. It explains why we are alienated from God because of our sins, right? And how we can be reconciled to him through faith in the shed blood of the Messiah, Yeshua. This book tells us how to maintain a close walk with God through daily faith, daily obedience, daily repentance. It explains why as well that we are alienated from one another. Same reason, our sin, and how to be reconciled to one another through following Adonai's commandments in all of our relationships. So let's break it down into its two components. Number one, we need to, again, according to Malachi, we need to remember God's word. Many believers disobey the word of God all over the place, often through ignorance, actually. And when they start reaping the consequences of that disobedience, they begin to blame God or they begin to blame other people. But at the root of their problem, really, is the fact that they've never learned God's word in the first place. You see, the human race can get together and they can agree that it's okay now to engage in premarital sex. It's okay now to engage in adultery. It's okay now to engage in homosexuality. It's okay now to engage in abortion. But our opinions and our resolutions and our laws do not alter the law of God. He has ordained that if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap to the flesh destruction. You see, if you and I stick our hand in the fire and then we complain, I didn't know it was going to burn me, our ignorance of that does not alter the fact that we got burned. The fire burns everyone, even those who are ignorant of its characteristics. My friends, sins, sin destroys people. Sin destroys relationships. Even, those, even when those sinning don't even realize that they are sinning. So if we want to remember God's word, we must apply ourselves to learn what it says. And the key is to regard that information as important. You see, a main reason we forget God's word is that you and I really don't regard the word of God as crucial for our survival. My friends, we've got to get to that place where we see that this book holds the answers to life's most important questions. It tells us, again, how to walk with God, how to walk with our fellow man, how to love our neighbor, including the neighbors who live with us under our same roof. The second component, number one, we need to remember Adonai's word. Number two, we need to obey it. Both Moses here and Elijah are mentioned in this Haftorah text. Moses wrote the Torah. Elijah symbolizes the prophets. The law and the prophets. That's a common way of referring to the entire Tanakh. Now, it's interesting that some scholars do not believe from these verses that Malachi actually expected Elijah to personally reappear in the future. Rather, they say, they say that Elijah may represent a succession of of prophetic forerunners, or that the new Elijah will be endowed with the same spirit and power without being the actual Elijah who is sent back long after his translation to heaven. I do think that Elijah, yes, he can be a figure. Yes, he can be an example of something in the future. And it is within accepted biblical interpretation to allow for this kind of fulfillment. But personally, for me, I would bank on the actual Elijah to appear before the Messiah's second coming as man's last chance to take, to make teshuva, to make repentance before judgment. Well, now let's look at the biblical record in the first century CE, as we fast forward, to see what the expectations were regarding Elijah several hundred years after this was written. The Jewish followers, the Talmudim, the disciples of Yeshua, asked him at one point, Quote, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Yeshua's response to them attested to the need for a prophet and a forerunner when he replied back to them saying, quote, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. 
But then Yeshua goes on to make a mysterious statement to them. He says, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished. And so Yeshua unveils the mystery when he speaks to a crowd here about the first century prophet known as Yochanan John the Immerser, when he said, quote, This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. For all the prophets of the law prophesied unto John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Now, Yeshua here clearly recognized uh, John as an Elijah figure. Okay, he wasn't John, he wasn't Elijah reincarnated or something like that. And so when Yeshua's disciples asked him, quote, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? It shows that the Torah teachers in that first century CE believed that Elijah would be first in a sequence of messianic comings. For Yeshua, it was a foregone conclusion for him that Elijah was to be the forerunner of the promised Messiah and that John came as a figure. He came as a symbol of Elijah. Yeshua was dramatically stating that fulfillment of the biblical requirements according to the prophet Malachi. Again, the application for us here this morning is that we need to obey all of God's word. And my friends, Adonai's word, have you noticed, is often extremely confrontational. How many of you love confrontation in your lives? Some do. If God's word today or any other day in your life is stepping on your toes, welcome to the club. <laughs> That's what it's designed to do. We wouldn't budge, would we, from our selfish, sinful ways if it didn't clobber us every once in a while. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the fruit of the spirit we talked about last week and the fruit of the flesh regarding clobbering other people being out of the spirit in that way. No, this is the word of God. In fact, it seems that our Jewish people didn't like the confrontational way that Malachi ended his prophecy, talking about, look at verse 24 again, a curse coming on the land if they didn't obey. So what they do in the Hebrew Bible, verse 23 is repeated after verse 24. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, verse 22 is repeated after verse 24. But God knows that our proud, stubborn hearts need some direct confrontation. That is the parting shot to remember. We need, I believe this, we need an occasional Elijah to get in our faces. Why? So that we'll deal with our sins and be ready for the coming and great, terrible day of the Lord. That's one of the great benefits, by the way, of reading Scripture on a consistent basis. It is profitable for, profitable for what? Reproof, correction, rebuke, training in righteousness. It will hit us with our sins. But Rabbi, isn't God love? Confronting me. You hear this a lot from Gen Z, unfortunately. My daughter's Gen Z age. Confronting me, Dad, sounds judgmental. Maybe you've never had that discussion with your kids. Okay, that's all right. We had that discussion when she brought her boyfriend to our house a while back. Like the guy. My friends, what can be more loving, though, than to... Shout a warning at someone that's heading toward destruction. God's warnings through his word actually stem from his love. It's clear here that the hearts of fathers will be restored to their children and the hearts of their children will be restored to their fathers. The text mentions fathers, but we can easily extend everything, I believe, to mothers if mothers obey God's word by dealing with their sin, they also will be reconciled to their children. What mothers and fathers begin when they start to obey God by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit we talked about last Shabbat towards their families, setting an example, walking with the Lord. He's going to bring, He will bring healing into our homes. Maybe it doesn't happen the next minute. 
or the next month or the next year possibly. But consistently, it will happen. He's going to bring healing into our home. And maybe you're here today and you think, God can't do that. I've been, it's been 20 years. God will do that. You do your part. You continue to do your part. We'll stand with you. We'll stand with you in prayer. We'll lock and load with you on prayer for your family. We will. We do. Again, it's not going to happen all at once, but it's, it will begin. And if we've been sinning against our spouse and children by not loving them, what do we need to do first? Oh, God, forgiveness, Lord. Please forgive me. And then we need to ask our families forgiveness. And then we begin to obey God by walking in love just as Yeshua loved us and gave himself up on the tree of sacrifice for us. So what was taking place on this day near the end of the Messiah's ministry that is discussed in the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures? Well, we know that this is the particular Shabbat when Yeshua went to Beit Anya, Bethany, right? He was having dinner with Lazarus and family. And it was because of the several week earlier incident there of raising Lazarus from the dead that many that day put their trust in Yeshua and welcomed him as the Messiah when he enters Jerusalem a day later, which is tomorrow on our calendar, which has come to be known in the Christian community as Palm Sunday. We know that historically at this time, the normal population of Jerusalem during the year would be around 20-25,000 people. Due to the Passover festival, the population swells to between 100 and 125,000 people. The city was crowded. The city is easily excitable at this point. Why? Because it's, they're celebrating the festival of God setting his people free from the heathen powers in the past. And it's quite easy if you're living in the first century to begin thinking, hey, I'm presently not free too. I've got Roman powers over me in the present. And so it's an emotionally charged atmosphere in Jerusalem. And that's why the Sanhedrin were so nervous. And why the Kohen Gadol, the high priest Caiaphas, was so concerned with the effects of Yeshua upon these crowds of people. Because the people, man, they're, it's like a tinderbox, man. They're easily excitable. And therefore the possibility of messianic revolt, very real to them. So let's pick up that account shortly afterwards in the book of Yochanan, John chapter 12. These are the days on the biblical calendar we're reading about. Verse 1, six days before Passover, Yeshua came to Bethany, Bedanya, where Lazarus was, whom Yeshua had raised from the dead. So they prepared a dinner there for Yeshua. Our dinner is going to be greater, by the way, on Saturday, next Saturday. And that's a big statement. No pressure, Vic. Just saying. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. <clears throat> then Miriam took a pound of very expensive oil of pure nard and anointed Yeshua's feet, and she wiped his feet dry with her hair. Now the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But Judah, Yehuda, Judas from the Cryot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this oil sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a ganaf, he was a thief. And since he had the money box, he used to steal from what was put in it. Therefore, Yeshua said, Leave her alone. She set it aside for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So we see here this chapter opens up with the scene of Miriam anointing Yeshua for burial. It's a beautiful scene, really, to be understood in contrast to what we might have read in chapter 11, the last part of the last chapter, where the religious officials are plotting actually to get rid of Yeshua. They're filled with rejection, they're filled with hatred. I know, Enoch, he doesn't like my preaching now. I'm sorry, it's, it's okay. He'll, he'll, come to, he'll come around. might take him 20 years, but he'll come around. All right. I know, I'm an acquired taste. People, I know, people don't like my preaching until you've been, it's like a frog in boiling water sometimes. You don't realize. Anyway. 
The religious officials, they're, they're plotting to get rid of him just a few verses earlier. They're filled with rejection of him. They're filled with hatred. Their sole reason for doing it is self-centeredness. And so we find at the celebratory dinner at Lazarus' house that here's Miriam in this selfless act, right? Giving all that she has, right? The most valuable, the most, the only possession probably she, that, that she has is she anoints Yeshua. We know that nard was an oriental perfume. It was an extravagant act, but for a woman to actually let down her hair, wipe a man's feet with it would have been at least as extraordinary in the eyes of the company there as it would be for us today, probably even more so. And you have here, what you have here is also the protest of Judas, of of Yehudah, Judah. He's saying, man, this is a very wasteful, impulsive gesture. The perfume's worth a year's work for the average man. That's how much that nard is worth. And yet John explains that Judas was not concerned really about the poor at all. He's a thief. He's a keeper of the money box for the ministry. And his being a thief was the reason why he's so upset here by this action. And so Yeshua's reply back to Judas suggests that the outpouring of the perfume should be regarded as an anticipation of what might have been reserved later for his burial. As unusual expenses at a funeral were not regarded as unseemly. In other words, Yeshua says... Judas, Miriam has performed the last rites for me here and now in lieu of the day of my burial. Concern for the poor, Judas, praiseworthy. It's good. But the poor are always going to be with you to receive your charity long after I've been taken away from you. Let's continue reading verse 12. The next day, the huge crowd that had come up for the feast heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hoshiana! Baruch Shem Adonai! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And finding a young donkey, Yeshua sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Yeshua was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that the crowd had done these things for him. So John here gives us an account, which takes place on our calendar tomorrow, of Yeshua entering Jerusalem. Palms appeared as the national symbols on the coins made by Judean insurgents during the first and second revolts against Rome in 66 and in 132. And so on this occasion, the palm branches may, in a sense, have signified the people's expectation, it's coming soon, of national liberation. And it's supported by the words that they greet Yeshua with. The people clearly expected, right, to come in, that he's going to, Yeshua is going to come in. He's going to break the power of Rome. He's going to set up his earthly kingdom right then. You see, our Jewish people were looking for the Messiah like that, as a king, as a ruler, as a redeemer, whose kingdom and whose authority would stretch across the globe and last forever. And so this Messiah is commonly referred to in Jewish space as Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, since the Messiah would, of course, come through the line of David. The 70-year moniker of, of David, as you know, was the only one really to actually unite Israel. David was a mighty warrior. He was a skilled warrior who accomplished monumental things by the anointing of God. And that's exactly the image of the deliverer that Israel had been waiting for for centuries. However, the image here is in stark contrast to another figure within historic Jewish thought as well, Mashiach ben Yosef. He is the precursor in Jewish scriptures, in Jewish tradition, to Mashiach ben David. He's going to help in gathering the exiles. He's going to rebuild the temple according to rabbinic thought again. And so this figure is best seen within Isaiah's suffering servant, who the Talmud refers to as, quote, the leper Messiah. And of these two figures, Ben Joseph, Ben Yosef, is downplayed, but Mashiach Ben David is exalted. And that's especially true with all the prophecies that are accepted today within the modern religious Jewish community. 
So we see here that certain aspects of this scene don't go along with the claim to be the expected and more highly exalted Davidic Messiah that they were waiting for, that they were expecting. Yeshua comes in on a Prius. I'm actually coming to like them more and more. I don't have a Prius, but with the gas prices as they are. The cult was a sign of humility. As a king, he should have come in differently, right? On a white horse, surrounded by soldiers. But Yeshua's not. He's surrounded by disciples, all of whom are ordinary, common, and therefore it's viewed by some This is some sort of ambiguous claim to Messiahship, Yeshua. But clearly the crowds see him, though, as someone who's going to come in now, set up the Messianic kingdom, and of course, Yeshua doesn't do that. You see, by Yeshua riding into Jerusalem on a Dodge Dart. Now, that's better. Anybody have a Dodge Dart from the mid-70s, man? Or a Pinto? What was that blow-up car? What was that thing? that The Pinto, right? It would blow up if you hit it in the back of it. He's coming by him riding into Jerusalem that way on a cult. Again, what was it doing? It was designed to correct the misguided expectations of the crowds and to show the city of Jerusalem this is the true way of peace. And so John expressly quotes here this prophecy from Zechariah 9 9 as finding its fulfillment in this incident. The choice of the cult as the royal mount, as it were, both in the Zechariah passage and in its fulfillment here, underlines this king's peaceful policy. Yeshua, again, he could have commanded, right, a ready following had he been disposed to adopt that course of action. But he offers Jerusalem the policy here of quiet and patient submission as the right course to follow. And so by referencing these prophetic verses from Zechariah, John here gives us a hint that Adonai, the salvation of Israel, the Messianic King, and Yeshua of Nazareth are all one. And John also hints at the two comings of the Messiah and the difference between them. In his first coming here, Yeshua is our final atoning sacrifice. Bringing salvation by his death, right? Therefore, he rides into Jerusalem humbly on a beast of burden, ready to perform the hard work ahead of him. His sitting on not only the donkey, but it says here it's colt, represents, in a sense, his ultimate humiliation at his first coming. The colt is described as a mere offspring of a beast of burden. It's even of a lower status than the mother animal. But Yeshua, how many of you know, will return triumphant as ruling king and rewarding the faithful. And so that's what was taking place on Shabbat HaGadol. And as we move into this coming week in our week, God in His wisdom prescribed festivals that keep memories alive in us. Why? To help nourish our souls and to teach us His ways. How many of you know God is not so much interested in us purely just recounting history sentimentally as our Jewish people have done for thousands of years at the Passover Seder. These historical events allow us, if if we'll allow them, to keep us on course if we remember their lessons. For remembering what God has done is a dynamic part of our spiritual life. And with that in mind, let's again quickly begin this annual journey of remembering each spring the Passover events, which we're going to experience a week from now at the Seder, Exodus chapter 3. We're going to go fast. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And so he led the flock to the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to the mountain of God, to Horeb. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses thought, I will go now and see this great sight. Why is the bush not burnt? When Adonai saw that he turned to look, 
He called to him out of the midst of the bush, like a fatherly call, Moshe, Moshe, Moses, Moses. Verse 7, Then Adonai said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their slave masters, for I know their pains. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land with a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, into a place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of Bnei Israel, the children of Israel, have come to me. Moreover, I have seen the oppression that the Egyptians have inflicted on them. Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out from Egypt. Verse 19, nevertheless, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go except by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will do in the midst of it. After that, he will let you go. So we see here the appointment of a leader as God chooses Moses to be the emissary of his divine will, the human instrument by which the redemption of Israel is to be carried through. Again, it's interesting, some of these verses, you take a look at verse 8 about the promised land that was going to support uh, agriculture, right? It says honey, from, uh, honey and pasturage, milk from goats, honey from dates, and many Arab tribes today are known to subsist for months on just that diet. No Big Mac in the picture. They subsisted on that diet. It's incredible. For months, they can do it today. God reiterates here, as he had done 400 years earlier, in giving the Israelites their land grant. It's reiterated again here from Genesis 15. Exodus chapter 4, quickly. God then has to rope in Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece. Moses kind of was hemming and hawing a little bit. He brings in Aaron to be that mouthpiece, and both of them then show the Israelites the signs that God had given to them as proof that he cared about their plight. You remember, the rod becomes a serpent, and the hand became leprous. Exodus chapter 5, we see that Moses and Aaron, as a tag team, they go to Pharaoh, and they say the classic line, right? What's that line? Let my people go so that they can celebrate a festival to honor the Lord. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh makes the Israelites' job harder by for forcing them to gather now their own straw for the, instead of the foreman gathering. And now they had to gather their own straw. And they had to make the same number of bricks as they labored for Pharaoh now. And the foremen of the Israelites complain back to Pharaoh. Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10. Pharaoh does not let the children of Israel go. So Moses has to warn him about several punishments, severe punishments, coming on them as Egyptians for his stubbornness, and thus ensues nine terrible plagues, right? We're going to look at them next Saturday in detail. River turned to blood, frogs, lice, insects, devastating livestock, illness, a preview of corona, sores, hail with fire, locusts, and darkness. And we're in Exodus chapter 11, look with me in verse 1. Now Adonai had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely thrust you out altogether from here. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what Adonai says, at about midnight, around midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the firstborn of the maidservant behind the mill, along with all the firstborn cattle, there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, the likes of which have never been before, nor will ever be again. But not so much as a dog will growl against B'nai Yisrael, neither man nor beast, so that you may know that Adonai makes a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. And so here we have, my friends, the announcement of the tenth and final plague. Pharaoh has closed the door. No more negotiations with Moses. That's it. No more negotiations. A final blow here, way beyond nature, way beyond human experience, is about now to go down on the Egyptians. Look at verse 1, chapter 12. Now God spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month will mark the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Again, as I mentioned last Shabbat, on Rosh Chodesh, this is the first month on the biblical calendar that God established. The impending exodus is visualized as a start, as a start of a new, of a new order of life, as it were. 
which is going to be dominated by the consciousness of God's active presence in human history. The biblical calendar of Israel was to reflect that reality by numbering the months of the year from this month, the month of the Exodus. Look with me at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one lamb for the household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor are to take one according to the number of the people. According to each person eating, you are to make your count for the lamb. Your lamb is to be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So we have here this final preparation for the, for the final plague. And here's, at this point, the parallel between the Passover lamb and Yeshua now come into play. Notice here, on the tenth day of the first month, the children of Israel were what? They were to choose lambs for the Passover sacrifices. And according to gospel chronology and harmonization, Yeshua enters Jerusalem on a donkey on the tenth day of the first month. As his disciples and the large crowds that we read about met him as he crosses over the Mount of Olives onto the old city of Jerusalem, into the city, hailing, they hailed him as Messiah, they hailed him as king. They were in retrospect, what were they doing? They were in retrospect choosing their Passover lamb, although they didn't understand that he came to die on their behalf. Now notice also that just as each household required a lamb sacrifice. The Word of God is clear that every individual needs a sacrifice for his or her sin. Notice as well that the Passover lamb had to be in the prime of life, had to be without blemish. Blemish refers to sin. You see the connections? Look at verse 6. You must watch over it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. They are to take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the crossbeam of the houses where they will eat it. They are to eat the meat that night, roasted over a fire, with matzot, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. They are to eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but only roasted with fire, its head with its legs and its innards. So let nothing of it remain until morning. Whatever remains until the morning, you are to burn with fire. Also, you are to eat it this way. With your loins girded, your shoes on your feet. Now that's interesting. Your loins. Listen, it's a nice event next Saturday night. Come dressed for the occasion. We're going to have professional, a professional photographer here to take some photos. So let's look nice. Let's have our loins girded. I know it's not an exact translation, but it just hit me right then and there about that. The blood will be assigned, verse 13, on the houses where you are. So the entire Jewish assembly, a nation in assembly, then slaughtered the lambs in a unified act at dusk or between the evenings in the Hebrew. What does that mean, between the evenings? It's an idiom really understood to mean mid-afternoon, the ninth hour, as it were, 3 p.m., around 3 o'clock. In verse 13, in each of the homes of the Israelites and Egyptians, that first Passover night, we just read an innocent life of a lamb had to be taken to spare the life of the firstborn of each family. The blood of the lamb was to be a token on their houses. So when, there, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There will be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Chapter five, 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? And we let Israel go from serving us. So Pharaoh lets the people let go. Pharaoh let them go. It becomes clear to him. Uh, they asked me that they could serve, that they could worship for a festival for three days. And now it's been three days. They're not coming back. This three-day journey that Moses had told me about has come and gone and now Pharaoh realizes, oh my goodness, I've been made a fool of. Look at verse 6. So he prepared his chariots and took his people with him. 
He took 600 of the finest chariots along with all other chariots of Egypt and captains over them. And Adonai hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, again. So he pursued the children of Israel. For Bnei Israel went out with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, as well as his charioteers and his army, and overtook them as they were encamped by the sea, beside Pihahirot, opposite Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, Bnei Israel lifted up their eyes. The children of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So they were terrified. And Bnei Israel cried out to Adonai. They said to Moses, Have you taken us away to die in the wilderness because there were no graves in Egypt? That is a typical Jewish way to approach problems. Blame the other guy, right? Why have you dealt this way with us to bring us out of Egypt? Did we not say to you in Egypt, Moses, let us alone? So that we may serve the Egyptians. It was better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, I love it. Do not be afraid. Stand still. Chill. He didn't say chill. Is that in your body? He didn't say that. And see the salvation of Adonai, which he will perform for you today. You have seen the Egyptians today, but you will never see them again. Ever. Adonai will fight for you while you hold your peace. Maybe that's a word for somebody here in someone's situation. Chill. Stand still. Let God fight for you. You're never going to see that Egyptian in your life again. Let me fight for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pharaoh led an elite corps of chariots. Look at this. It's a powerful innovation. It was a revolutionary innovation in the art of warfare comprised of a driver, a warrior, and a shield bearer drawn by two horses. And the self-assurance of our people vanishes suddenly. And now, and like it is today, my friends, only God can save them. Only God can save us. But they turn on their leader. It can happen. But Moses ignores their rebuke and attempts to calm them down and allay their fears. Look at verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Adonai drove the sea back with a strong east wind throughout the night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. So Moses fulfills the instructions in the preceding verses but it's clear that God is the immediate cause of what's about to go down. Imagine, my friends, for a moment, what it looked like. Well, we know what it looked like. Charlton Heston showed us the way. We, we know. <coughs> Some of the Gen X, Gen Y, what are you talking about? Watch it. It'll probably be on this week somewhere on television. Look with me at verse 23. But the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came about during the morning watch <coughs> that Adonai looked at the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and caused the army of the Egyptians to panic. He took off their chariot wheels, caused them to drive heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Get away from the presence of Israel, for Adonai fights for them against us. Then Adonai said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots, and over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand out over the waters, and the sea returned to its strength at the break of dawn. The Egyptians were fleeing from it, but Adonai overthrew them in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and the entire army of Pharaoh that went after them into the sea not one of them, not one of them remained. Total wipeout of the Egyptians. Millions saw it happen. And the story spreads throughout the Middle East. And so these are the historical events that we're going to relive once again with sights, with smells, with tastes. For those of you who have registered for our congregational Seder, a week from tonight. Final thoughts today. My friends, 
as sinful, unredeemed humans, we were in the same situation as our Jewish people in Egypt were, really. We had no power to save ourselves, nor did we deserve salvation. Adonai saved us by a miracle. It was a direct intervention from heaven. Permit me for a moment to compare the wicked king of Egypt to Hasatan and the kingdom of ancient Mitzrayim, Egypt, compared to the kingdom of darkness. Egypt represents the present world, this present world, which is in bondage temporarily to the God of this world, Paul says, and to the princes of the power of the air. In this Egypt, as it were, of sin and death, we were driven by sin, we were ruled by our flesh. Metaphorically speaking, yeah, we were serving Pharaoh. We were slaves of the adversary. Remember those days? Yet all too often we forget we are set free from sin. So God gives us a practical exercise in the festival of Pesach and related days of unleavened bread to sear that, to burn that in the middle of our minds and our hearts. Heavenly lesson. For you see, the redemption from Egypt corresponds to our redemption from the kingdom of darkness. And when Adonai rescued Israel from Egypt, he took the people away from Pharaoh, right? The Israelites no longer belonged to the Egyptians. Instead, they belonged to Adonai. And this transfer of ownership from Pharaoh to Adonai, from sin to righteousness, is what the scriptures speak about when they talk about redemption. When the scriptures say that Adonai redeemed us, it means that he bought us back. He transferred ownership back to himself. We are instructed to remember at this time and to teach our children how the angel of death passed over the houses of the Hebrews when he saw the blood of the Passover lamb upon the doorposts of their homes. What a powerful picture it is, my friends, of the power of the sacrificial blood. My friends, if the blood of a lamb or a goat can deflect the wrath of an angel of death, is there anything that the blood of the Son of God Cannot deflect. No. My friends, can you comprehend the dynamics of what was transpiring? Think about it. In the spirit realm, when the blood of Yeshua on that Passover afternoon was being poured out, hell, I believe, was screaming. It was screaming. This is why it's important to learn from the festivals of the Lord. They are pregnant with so much. They're not going to be aborted. They are pregnant. They're going to give birth in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. And could this be then, could this be the reason why the adversary deceived the early Gentile believers to cast away the treasures of the Jewish roots of the faith? Worship, uh, worship. April was asking me, what's what's the etymology? What's the tradition of having Easter ham? And you begin to look at that to distance themselves away from the Jewish roots of their faith at this time. God doesn't want us to know the extent, or the adversary doesn't, he doesn't want us to know the extent of the power of the God of Israel. Could this be the 2,000 year cover up in the Gentile world? My friends, the story of the Exodus from Egypt is the Torah's way of telling us the story of salvation in Yeshua. You see, the exodus from Egypt was not the end of the journey for the Israelites, was it? No. It was just the beginning of their walk with Adonai. And in the same way, our salvation through Yeshua, it's not the end of our spiritual journey. It's only the beginning. Why would you want to have the fire insurance on your deathbed when it's the beginning of the journey? We can experience Zoe, abundant life now in Yeshua. The point of all this that I have mentioned today is that while Passover began with Moses, it was fulfilled. What does that mean? It was made perfect in Yeshua. And when our Jewish people come to the saving knowledge that Yeshua is the Messiah, their Messiah, they will have an entirely different perspective 
on what this festival means for them. I firmly believe I'm going to be invited to an ultra-Orthodox Jewish Passover Seder of Haredim that are now followers of Yeshua. And it's not so far off. It's not so far off. The Pharisees, if you will, allow me to make that because they're the modern-day Pharisee. They're just delineated from... They're coming to Yeshua. In Israel, they're coming to Yeshua. It was said of Rabbi Ovadiah Yosef back in 2013 before he died. There was 200,000 Israelis at his funeral. That he was a secret follower of Yeshua. I have first-hand, second-hand knowledge that, that he was a believer in Yeshua. From somebody who had an interview with him before he died. It's, it's happening in Israel. It's happening all around the world. Someone said to me, and I can't back it up, I can't research it, but that 30% of those fleeing Ukraine that are Jews are believers in Yeshua. 30% of Ukrainian Jews are believers in Yeshua. Whew. We're not talking about remnant theology anymore. We're talking about a majority mentality when it comes to Israel following the Messiah. A day is under the Lord as a thousand years, a thousand years under one day. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Yes, it's, I want it to happen tomorrow. I, it gets me up every day. But the Lord's not slack concerning his promises. He's not on my schedule. I'm on his. Stand with me today. Throughout the generations, our Jewish people have observed Passover under the harshest of circumstances. In fact, you remember two years ago, Israelis couldn't even do it outside their own homes because of Corona. It's sad, really, to me anyway, that most of our Jewish people have not yet made the all-important connection between Moses' redeeming work and Yeshua's completing work. Prophetically, as I mentioned, we're already seeing it change. It's starting to change. And so I'm going to ask you to join with me this week to pray that our Jewish people around the world begin to make these connections as they prepare to gather for their family seders this week. Would you pray with me this week about that? Prayer changes things. Father God, we bless you and we praise you. We pray for our people at this time, wherever they are. Continue to lift up the situation in Ukraine. We know that even because of this horrific situation that many are even celebrating these pre-Passover days like being expelled from Egypt. But they're being expelled to a land, a spiritual land of promise. They have nothing but the clothes on their back I know, Lord, you're speaking to them in their night watches. Comfort our people as they flee even now, God. We come against this aggressive war in Yeshua's name. We tell it to cease in the name of Yeshua. We ask, oh God, as we prepare our home tables and we prepare our congregational Seder, that this Passover would be the most meaningful that we've ever celebrated because you are doing something in and through us bringing more of these connections home, oh God. And I pray, Lord, that there is a Jewish person in every person's life here that we can reach out to this week, wishing them a Chag Pesach Sameach. And even, Lord, the ability to quickly make a 60-second office elevator pitch to them about the fulfilling work of Yeshua, paralleling Moses' redeeming work. Lord, you're the God of the impossible, making things possible. Nothing's impossible for you, God. And so, Father, we thank you for our very lives. We thank you for our health. We thank you for the friends that we've made here. We thank you for all that you've done in and for us. You brought us from miry clay. You paid every bill. It seemed like we couldn't go on. And you raised us up from that bed of affliction. Some of us were so depressed and discouraged, we couldn't even get out of bed until a rhema from the Lord came down and, and brought you forward. If there are any listening on this podcast that are that discouraged, I'm telling you, hope is going to arise in your heart. Hope's rising at this time. So we thank you, Lord, for doing all this and much more in our midst. Hashem Yeshua. And as God told Moses and Aaron, 
to bless the people of God. He did this in this way. He asked them to pray this prayer. It's God's prayer. Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you this day. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you his peace. In the name of Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, all of us are with him said. Amen. Amen. Greet each other with a holy hug. We'll see you out in the lobby. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out, too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.